We all love a good conspiracy theory. 9-11 was an inside job, the moon landings were faked, Princess Diana was assassinated. There's a thrill in joining the dots between seemingly random events and discovering hidden patterns. But what was once a parlour game for most, and only a worldview for a few in the fringes, has recently become mainstream. The President of the United States, for example, is a keen exponent of conspiracy theories and used them effectively in his run to the White House. And it's not just our American cousins who believe such things. A recent poll found that nearly half of all Britons believe that the government is conspiring to falsify immigration statistics. Why then are we drawn to dark tales of plots concocted in the shadows of murky cabals manipulating global events? And what happens when we elevate a conspiracy theory to the status of historical truth? Welcome to the Big Idea Podcast from the University of Edinburgh. I'm Ed McCracken. Joining me today to discuss all this and more, we have the organisers of this year's Edinburgh Spy Week, the university's annual public event on espionage, film and fiction, and the ways in which secrecy runs through our history and culture. So today we have Professor Penny Fielding, Grierson Professor of English Literature. We have Dr. David Sorfa, Senior Lecturer in Film Studies. And we have Dr. Simon Cook, Lecturer in English Literature. Thanks very much for joining us today. Later in the podcast, we'll be looking at conspiracies in works of fiction, and specifically why we keep returning to John le Carre's tale of subterfuge, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. But first, let's look at conspiracy theories themselves. So Penny, if you can kick us off by giving us, as you see it, a definition of what actually a conspiracy theory is. Well, I'm going to complicate it from the start, because <laughs> I think we need to bear in mind that there are really two kinds of conspiracies. So there is an actual conspiracy, which is a, a kind of legal concept, a criminal conspiracy, you know, which might be a bank robbery, um, or in history it might be the gunpowder gun plot. But we seem to be not quite satisfied with that kind of conspiracy which can be tested in a court of law. So there's another world, which I guess is something we'll be talking about more today, which we could even think of as conspiracism. That is the belief that somebody else is manipulating information, manipulating events, and some people are on the inside and they have the knowledge. Some people don't have the knowledge, but a select group, if they work hard enough, might be able to penetrate that veil of conspiracy and discover what's going on. So you, you kind of draw a line between actual you know, conspiracies and then conspiracy theories. I suppose theory kind of suggests that it's, it's unproven. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are uh, examples you know, from the same field that um, you know, push conspiracies in both directions. So in the early, in the late years of the 19th century and early years of the 20th century, there was there were a number of spy novels that uh, were convinced that there was uh, an international financial conspiracy uh, run by Jewish bankers who were attempting to take over the world, and this comes across in a number of popular fictions and obviously takes on a darker and darker hue until uh, the uh, rise of the Nazi party in Germany. And that's all nonsense. There was no such conspiracy. On the other hand, if we return to the idea of banking, there definitely was a conspiracy in the recent financial crisis where banks manipulated LIBOR, the, the lending rate, in order to either make themselves seem more trustworthy or indeed to maximise their profits through trade. Mm. So uh, conspiracies of both kinds uh, are littered throughout history. Do you have, um, Simon, do you have any kind of conspiracy theories or anything which kind of that kind of fascinate you more than maybe others? 
Yeah, I think right now, like a lot of people, I'm very exercised by um, the prevalence of conspiracy theories among quite hard, far-right um, demagogues in, uh, in contemporary politics. Um, I find it absolutely fascinating that we have someone, as you said in your introduction, like Donald Trump, who's really kind of fascinated by, obsessed by conspiracy theories at the centre of power. Um, and I think the appeal of conspiracy theory, uh, the, the appeal of an idea that everything is somehow networked, explicable, connected in a way that means there are no accidents, nothing arbitrary. This is no coincidence, folks. This is a very appealing response to um, a very complex world. And so I think, you know, I find the fact that it's so so prevalent there uh, is, is very interesting. And you have something quite similar um, uh, in the in the, kind of, in the British context too. I was reading a YouGov poll um, that said that half of UKIP members think MI5 uh, is working to undermine uh, their work. Yeah, uh, David. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting about this kind of interest in in, in conspiracy theories is this real desire for there to be a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. You know, this sense that oh, there is some meaning here, and in a way, one uh, perhaps a slightly fanciful way of thinking about it is that it's a new version of religion. Mm-hmm. We all know that God is dead, at least some of us. Um, but what if there actually is another world? So it's a kind of a, a nostalgia for a time when things made sense, when then there was a single, and in fact, that's why conspiracy theories, I think, get bigger and bigger, because what you want is a single conspiracy theory that explains everything in the world. Clearly, God used to do that. Now we need something else. Or so, perhaps we're going back to God hmm. as the ultimate conspirator. David, do you have any kind of particular conspiracy conspiracy theories or narratives that you kind of find just particularly interesting? No. No. <laughs> okay. Um, um, Penny. My favorite is one which implicates us. <laughs> that is uh, the famous theory that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare's plays. Um, it's, it's a good conspiracy theory because, of course, it can't be proven, partly because the field in which this inquiry is taking place is already so um, complicated. Theatre in the early modern period was very um, communal and lots of people wrote plays together and plays got changed. We know that there are three separate texts of Hamlet. They were all written by somebody called Shakespeare, but they were all completely different. So in a way, these conspiracy theories are so totally unnecessary. I also like them because they cancel each other out. So you're either a Baconian or an Oxfordian, and there's a certain kind of logic to all these conspiracies. Yeah, yeah. That they make sense, but of course, you know, they have no purchase on the real world. Yeah, and of course that the Shakespeare didn't write his plays theory so brilliantly done in Roland Emmerich's Anonymous, um, which in fact surprisingly is I think quite a good film. Um, and presents a fairly sensible sort of approach to the issue. If And in fact, I, th- I suppose that, that's an interesting thing. There is no real issue, mm-hmm. but it kind of, in its sensibleness, in its matter-of-factness, if you like, it says, oh, here are some facts. 
facts and isn't that odd and you know how could so and so do so and so um, but I'd say Emmerich's film is surprisingly a very good investigation of both conspiracy theories as well as being itself a conspiracy theory yeah I mean the way you're describing kind of that particular kind of conspiracy theory it, it, it sounds like a almost like an intellectual exercise you know as well it kind of you know forces you to kind of why do I believe what I believe type thing and you know when there's some shreds of alternative evidence suggesting I should believe something else but then it, you know so it, it sounds like I think a mentor referred to it as a, as, a, as a parlor game you know it's kind of a yeah. nice fun thing to in, indulge in um, so that might be one beneficial aspect of a conspiracy theory Simon I suppose that goes a little bit back to um, Penny's opening remarks about the fact that we have the conspiracy, you know, real conspiracies in which there's something which needs to be uncovered, and you think, well, it's it's a really good thing that we're sceptical about power, that we that we investigate and we question the legitimacy of things, and that sometimes conspiracies are uncovered. But then there's that whether there's anything sort of beneficial about then turning that into a a conspiracism in which there's a total system in which everything can be explained by this one mm. one size fits all theory. Um, I think is probably quite. Quite, that's quite pernicious and dangerous. I think that that, that can uh, result in I think if it's, difficult situations. Uh, it makes the easy solution yeah. the, the most popular, and that's not always beneficial. Uh, although questioning power yeah. is always a good idea. Mm. Yeah, but having a kind of um, your worldview being one that everything is a conspiracy mm. is, as you say, pernicious and potentially... Well, potentially delusional yeah. because... In fact, the um, uh, you know the definition of, or at least a certain kind of definition of a paranoid mental state, um, very clearly kind of sounds like it's describing somebody who has a lot of conspiracy theories, people ganging up, secret groups, and all these kinds of things, um, and so at its worst, conspiracy theorism, conspiracism, just becomes a mental aberration. Um, but perhaps a comforting one. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I think the interesting thing about paranoia is that it, it's a delusion of persecution, but also a delusion of grandeur, you know, because mm. it's a very meaningful universe in which everything is significant, everything is intended, everything is connected, and of which, in which you're at the centre. <laughs> so so there's a, you know, there are uh, sort of interesting psychological uh, dimensions to that. So what do you think happens whenever, you know, this kind of mindset that moves into the mainstream? Like if you had mentioned yourself, uh, Simon, that, you know, President Trump himself is, uh, you know, he has dipped his toes in the conspiratorial waters. I mean, what does it mean whenever, you know, it's not just some people on the Internet kind of saying stuff like this, where you have actually the most powerful man in the free world yeah. um, displaying signs of a, a conspiracy theorist? I, I think it, it just indicates how powerful a conspiracy theory can be um, in explaining the world. Um, I think it just shows that um, even proposing the idea of things being connected, this is not just accidental, there are things going on out there that we don't know about that are being kept from us, that this has extraordinary um, power. You know, talking about whether they can be have benefits, I think they can be quite enabling in, in that way if you can sort of convince yourself of this. Um, it's, it's lots of studies of people like Rousseau, um, you know, that his his paranoia kind of was his engine for success, you know, because you've got the world is against me, I'm going to keep fighting and you've got to keep, keep going. And uh, I think, you know, you see that in quite a lot of these kind of paranoid conspiracy theorists. It's often the successful who hold uh, some of these views as well. Yeah. Penny? 
Yeah, I think with Trump, we have to confront the famous uh, post-truth situation in which we find ourselves. I mean, with him, it's not entirely clear um, what he knows and what is the difference between something Trump knows and something Trump says. Those things seem to be pretty much the same. Trump is, after all, as is very frequently said uh, in this whole narrative surrounding Russia and so forth, uh, he's in a position to know. All he has to do is pick up the phone and you know, tell, ask the CIA what the truth is, or the FBI in this case. Um, but that would disrupt the, the, se- the pure surface of knowledge that we seem to be living in, where nothing is dif- differentiated. It's just a stream of things that uh, emanate from the mouths of certain people. Academia itself has a a lot to answer for, I think, because since the 1980s and perhaps even since the 60s, there has been, in let's call them progressive academic circles, a move towards relativism generally. That the academic argument has been that there is no single truth, but only multiple truths. Um, And I think this way of thinking was originally meant, and perhaps is even now still meant, as a, as a progressive, leftist, inclusionary mode of thinking. You know, your truth is not necessarily my truth and so on. We should be uh, aware of different points of view and different ways of considering what a truth might be. So that's a very, let's say, a well-meaning version of the post-truth world. And in fact, somebody like Trump and others just come in and go, oh, hold on. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, And what that means is that I can just choose to believe whatever I want to believe because there is no truth. And suddenly you have the Pontius Pilate position. Ah, yes, but what is truth? And, I mean, just in general, I mean, we're talking about, you know, committee hearings, you know, uh, in America and equivalents here in the UK as well where the people in power are kind of questioned about how much they know. And there's you can get the occasional evasive answer, you know, there's the we can neither confirm nor deny kind of response. Does it does it matter if kind of the government keeps secrets from the public? I think one of the reasons that uh, spy films and literature and documentaries um, tend to gravitate towards the Second World War is that it was obviously necessary to keep secrets. I recently visited the uh, museum at Bletchley Park, you know, the, where they have a, a, an amazing replica of the machine that broke uh, the Enigma code. No, no one would say that that should have been thrown open to the public, you know, in the 1940s. Um, but even in peacetime, there is a grey area, and I think a good example is the um, talks leading up to the Good Friday Agreement, um, where members of Her Majesty's government were having secret uh, conference with terrorists, mm-hmm. and that turned out to have a very good outcome. So there is, it's never quite as easy as we would like it to be. Would you describe then the talks that happened between terrorists and the UK government leading up to these, the Good Friday Agreement? Would you describe that as a conspiracy then? I wouldn't, but I think a lot of people would. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that governments, is talk, governments of any nature are talking to terrorists could be seen as a conspiracy by... Um, people who have vested interests in keeping uh, these conflicts going. Hmm. Anyone else think it's healthy for, you know, it's, secrets are a healthy part of a, a how government runs? Well, I mean, one, um, perhaps not quite 
speaking to that question, <laughs> but, but to something else that, but, uh, that Penny was talking about. I was thinking about the way in which people speak in government. And one of the things I was just thinking about was what was really important about Armando Unici's The Thick of It was the swearing. The swearing was absolutely crucial. And I was trying to work out why, why is that. And it seemed to me because what it was doing was presenting a world of absolute cynicism. There was nothing else behind that. So in a way, there was this weird... No, the conspiracy was that there was absolutely no conspiracy. There was actually nothing going on other than jockeying for power on a very small and individual basis. And in fact, if everybody's doing that, then it all looks like a massive conspiracy, but it doesn't actually require one. It was a very odd kind of thing. And, and, and the swearing in the thick of it and then in the film in, um, in the loop just seemed to be so crucial to describe or to, to show that. There's a perfect moment uh, when Malcolm, they're all plotting <laughs> come mm. somewhere. Malcolm pulls open the door and says, what's this Tinker Tailor soldier? And then he uses, <laughs> he uses a bad word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that is my favourite part. It's of my favourite too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come on to uh, talk a lot more about Tinker Tailor soldier spying uh, <laughs> in the second half. Uh, uh, that's coming up right after this. Welcome back to part two of the Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh. Um, so, Penny, can you give us a bit of an overview of Spy Week uh, this year? What's going on? What dates it's happening? Sure. Well, we start on Monday the 17th. We're interviewing spy novelists like Ali Munro. We have some talks on the history of terrorism and espionage in the 19th century. We have an actual spy, Annie Machen, who worked for uh, MI5. Uh, we have uh, a new biography of the first M. So everyone who thinks that was Judy Dench, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> Maxwell Knight was the first uh, M. Uh, and Henry Hemming, who's written a biography of him, is going to come and talk to us. And we have a final event on Spies on TV. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so Spies on TV um, will... Well, there are a few, few dimensions to it. There will be um, an... A talk by uh, a scholar called Joseph Oldham <coughs> on on the uh, the roles of spies on television quite broadly, um, exploring the, the, the wide range of uh, spy dramas. Um, we have Zinni Harris, uh, a playwright and uh, writer whose uh, credits, many credits, include uh, spooks. Um, and then um, Penny, uh, David and myself will be talking about the different versions of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh, as book, TV series and film. And there'll be a film programme as well running at Film House in Edinburgh, um, which is concentrating this year on adaptations of John Le Carré. And so what dates does the uh, Spy Week run in its entirety then? That's the 17th until... 17th to the 22nd. Very good. And is there a website that people can go to? Yes, it's quick. the quickest way of getting it to it is just to Google Edinburgh Spy Week. Very good. Cool. Thank you for that public service announcement. <laughs> Much appreciated. Um, spies, I mean, what role do they play in conspiracies? Would you say they're, they're quite an essential part? Spies are often in the middle of the conspiracy. They don't know what's happening either. And that's the case in a lot of Le Carre stories, mm. which I think is another reason that he is you know, such a great novelist in, in the, spy, the spy world. But spies are also the kind of the border crosses. Mm. 
that they can move from one world to the next to the other and back again. They may not understand either world, um, but they are the ones. They're the kind of the, almost the trickster figure, where um, they can exist in both realms. Um, and yeah, and perhaps it's it's that kind of um, figure of the messenger, uh-huh. quite literally so, that the spy really really kind of fulfills in, in conspiracy fiction. The spy is quite a, an interesting figure if you think in terms of intercultural encounter because what do they do? They can pass as something completely different. They can appear in every sense to be entirely part of a different culture and situation and have a, and yet remain all the time totally loyal to a particular national ideal. So they're, they're a trickster and yet they sort of dramatise this possibility of remaining loyal despite outward appearances. So, I mean, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy there. Um, I think the three of you will be reunited on stage to, to discuss this. Um, first, there was obviously the initial book, then there's the TV series, and then there's the recent film. And what is it about it as a tale which kind of compels storytellers to return to it over and over again? Oh, it seems to be about so many things. And Le Carre had made his name with um, the brilliant um, spy who came in from the cold uh, the decade before, which is a much shorter book. And this seemed to be the flowering of, you know, Le Carre as a novelist. And it's a proper novel. You know, it's about a whole society um, as it is forced to interrogate how it has got to be where it is. A society made up basically of public schoolboys who have been, you know, running the country whose uh, power has been denuded by uh, a mole. And we find out, of course, in the end, who that mole is, and uh, that a terrible act of, more than one terrible act of, uh, acts of betrayal have taken place. So uh, this, the novel, which is a very rich and detailed novel about how those ideas of betrayal and class and secrecy run throughout the whole of our society. Uh, you know, the novel engages us um, and asks us to think about these matters as a partly a work of espionage, but also a love story, uh, uh, a story of social realism, uh, and now an interesting work of history. Mm. So it was published in 1964. And so, so that was, and that was the book, and then it was made into a TV series. Yeah, the TV series was in '79, yeah, isn't it? Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I mean, it's a, it's there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about the sort of renaissance of the TV serial at the moment? You know, we've had the sort of HBO and all, all of these big uh, producers and everything sort of getting into it. And sometimes, if you say, let's go back to Twin Peaks as as something that sort of precedes all this, and I think you can also say you can go back to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as this extraordinary. Um, Televisual work of art, um, and it's it's very fa- it's really fascinating to think about the way each particular medium intersects with the ideas of of spying and espionage. There's something about the idea of tuning in at a particular time, as would have been the case, to watch this as a as a nation um, and to be kind of tuning into this. And one of the things I find very fascinating about this TV series is how often 
you'll have a very interesting soundscape. You'll hear the church bells, or you'll hear the the, the sirens, or you know, you'll, you'll hear these this sort of the familiar sounds of the environment infiltrating this apparently secret world. It's a very sort of strange mixture of the secret and the very everyday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at some point late, I shouldn't give too much away, but one of our characters says that the uh, it's always in the secret services that we find out most about national character. And, and in a way, this is a portrait of a, of a, of a society at a particular time. Um, and so I think that that's one yeah. of its fascinations. Uh, and did you think that the um, the TV series, I mean, because that was the, at the dawn of the Thatcher yeah. era, do right. you think yeah. it, it does reflect that? In the, in the book, um, characters say what at the end of sentences, a very kind of uh, formal aristocratic kind of language. Um, and that, that's taken away... There's a, there's a slight kind of shift in register uh, in, in the dialogue, which seems to kind of tie it to a slightly different period. The, no, the novel itself is quite elegiac, and yeah. looking back uh, across a past that, you know, historically uh, it, it thinks about the betrayal of uh, the British Secret Service by Kim Philby. Um, if so you can give us a bit of background, Kim Philby was... Kim Philby rose uh, through the ranks of MI6. Uh, very successfully, he was the archetypal, you know, good-looking spy as public schoolboy. And he, of course, was passing on all his secrets to the Russians. And uh, the British Secret Service missed a number of chances to catch him. It, it was revealed that a great number of secrets had been passed on to the Russians uh, and that the relationship between... Uh, so-called special relationship between the UK and the USA would never be the same again. Uh, and the the idea of that charismatic betrayer uh, is picked up in the both the novel and very much so in the TV series. Um, we have to be careful in case anyone still hasn't seen it. Uh, you know, who is a, a, again a very elegant charismatic figure yeah. um, and then David where does, where does the film the which came out in 2011 2011 yeah, yeah. I mean it's interesting because one of the things that Le Carre seems to be really good at is a certain kind of nostalgia um, and what I think the 2011 version does is it looks back to the 1970s as a period where we knew who the bad guys were the Cold War, the Russians were evil, the British were good. Although that's not actually Le Carre's position. I yes. think in Le Carre's position, nobody's good. But, you know, this, in fact, I think the 2011 film kind of goes back and says, God, wasn't that great when we knew who the bad guys were, um, even though it was all complicated? So there's this real fetishization of the look of the 70s. The hair is magnificent throughout. You know, the clothing is 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 exaggerated in a, in, in a crazy sort of way. So there's a, but it's, but it's a very specific view of the 70s, which if you compare it to the television series, the television series is grimy and down at heel and people worry about their pensions and things like that a lot. That seems to be the main reason. In a, in a looking glass wall, for instance, that's their main problem. Um, you know, can they afford central heating? But in the, kind of new version, the film version, 70s is this kind of glossy brown techno version of a world where, as I say, you knew who who the baddies were, the communists, and in our current world in 2011, the world then, 
We don't know who the enemy is. And even if we do know who they are, they're not like us. The nice thing about the communists is that we understood who they were. Mm-hmm. Is that common with other spy movies? Would you, uh, or even kind of other spy books reflecting the, the, the times in which they're, they've been published or filmed? That's one of the really interesting things about spy fiction, if you compare it to, say, detective fiction, that you know, you don't, that the antagonists are engaging in the same activities. And so there's a great deal of pressure put on identifying somehow some moral foundation that justifies being a spy for, for one side rather than a spy for the other. Um, you know, you don't have the detective and the criminal, you have two spies. So, so how do you deal with that? And, you know, like in early examples, or Le Q and Oppenheim, they sort of try to escape from the whole word of spy. You know, sort of, we have British agents and foreign spies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that does become a really kind of fascinating kind of moral ambivalence in the work of Le Carre, that he, he's really... I think that's a big yeah. question when you're looking at his work, is what what are the kind of the moral foundations for... Uh, yeah, there's a wonderful behavior. central scene in uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which has spy in the title. Um, whereas in, in the earlier... Uh, late 19th century um, novels that Simon was talking about. Spy was a dirty word. Mm. There was a famous one called Spies for the Kaiser, which yeah. is about Germans lurking in, yeah. you know, in British society. And anyway, in Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and this is in the film as well, there's a, a wonderful central scene, which is a, an interrogation scene between our man, Alec Lemus, and the East German agent who isn't supposed to be interrogating him, Fiedler, and they talk exactly about that, about um, whether it is possible to separate each other by ideology. Mm. And Fiedler keeps saying to, to Limas, but, you know, we're on opposite sides of the table. What do you believe? And Limas doesn't really believe in anything. Uh, and so the absurdity of their situation is caught, I think, absolutely brilliantly in that, uh, in that scene. I was actually just thinking more generally about various kind of spy films and so on and how they... And the one that came to mind was a slightly odd one from the 1940s, Went the Day Well by Cavalcanti, which perhaps isn't exactly a spy film, but it's about uh, a Nazi regiment who dress up as um, British troops and arrive in a village and take it over. And slowly the villagers realise that these British soldiers are in fact the evil Nazis and then they revolt against them. Um, And I suppose, coming back to our our earlier discussion about conspiracy, this is this idea that you can't trust even the people in power who are your protectors because they could be dressed up as something else. Um, I don't know quite why that that, that, that (laughs) popped into my mind, but it seemed... um, I think after the Cold War, in, in addition to having these very dark sort of spy noir novels like the Spy Who Came In From The Cold, you know, also produced a number of novels which was just about the sheer absurdity of, of what was going on. And Graham Greene is very good at these. So you have a, a novel and, again, a very good film like um, Our Man in Havana, which is really a conspiracy theory seen through the other end of the telescope because it's just this one guy making stuff up <laughs> uh, and taking... He's a, vac- a vacuum cleaner salesman and he uses his vacuum cleaners to draw plans, apparently, you know, of a, of a kind of atomic facility. Um, 
you know, the sense of the Cold War not being an actual war with actual clear villains and actual battles and engagements and objectives um, did lead to a number of very brilliant uh, novels pointing out the absurdity of the situation. What about um, kind of very kind of contemporary kind of uh, TV shows about spies and spying and espionage and things like, you know, Homeland or The Americans? I mean... What what would you draw from that? Looking at that in terms of you know why these shows, why now, what are they dealing with? Well, the interesting one for me is coming back to Le Carre again is the Night Manager. Yes, uh-huh. and the interesting thing about that is that in the Night Manager, the system as such is okay. The evil person within that is the evil capitalist. Whereas in the seventies, I think in the seventies fiction the whole system was corrupt. There was no, you know, whether you were a spy on one hand or a spy on the other, there, there was nothing to, to tell between them. Whereas now we're, in the night manager particularly, we're in this good world which is being corrupted by a single evil person who we can identify. In fact, the Bond films do this all the time. You know, you've got the evil villain, so you're not fighting against a system. You're not fighting against even another government. Mm -hmm. You're fighting against one bad apple. And if we get that bad apple, then the whole system is fine. There's no Mm -hmm. problem. Um, You know, the fact that Hugh Laurie's character is selling weapons, that's the problem. It's not a problem that people are using those weapons then to shoot people. It's quite a comforting one, you know, again, identifying one person, one bad apple, you know, sort him out, send Hugh Laurie back to do comedy and everything will be fine, you know. Um, Is that because, would you say it's because, you know, we are in a time where we would like to be comforted by a simplistic solution to uh, big problems? Yes, but then I think we've always wanted that. Uh So I think fiction generally likes a identifiable villain. Um, because if it doesn't, then we're in the realm of literature, which is a whole different thing. But <laughs> in terms of, you know, just general ideas about how fiction works, you know, you need an antagonist. And it's very difficult to have an antagonist that you can't identify or that keeps on changing to something else or may not even exist in the first place. So, but it does, I think, politically shift the conversation away from look, there may be a problem with something that we're doing to, oh, no, look, it's somebody else's problem and we can actually fix that problem, but we don't have to look at what we ourselves are up to. Mm -hmm. I think there's also something quite British about some of these BBC TV series. Um, Spooks uh, was... It was very enjoyable, but it was oddly kind of issue based as books. So there'd be an episode, is it okay to torture somebody? And, you know, well, let's run through this. Uh, There was an episode like that. Whereas if you contrast that with something like, um, you know, 24, Jack Bowers already tortured three or four people (laughs) by the time the situation even arises. You know, so uh, there is something comforting, you know, to use that word, I think, uh, about some of these series that the BBC have produced. Yeah. Do you think then, just to bring things to a close, do you think that um, espionage fiction, spy fiction, dealing with conspiracies, do you think that it makes conspiracies seem a bit more plausible? Uh, One of the interesting things for me in the recent uh, hearings in Congress in America was there was a certain amount of unveiling of 
how secrets are kept. So I think that fiction, which um, encourages us to think about the techniques of secrecy and you know the fact that keeping a secret isn't just a matter of keeping your mouth shut, it's kind of quite complicated, uh, gives us the chance to think about what is likely to be true, what is necessary to be secret, uh, and questions like that. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Just one more time, can you remind listeners where they can see the three of yourselves talking about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? That is on Saturday, the 22nd of April at two o'clock in 50 George Square. Excellent. Very good. Well, it just leaves me to thank uh, today's guest. That's uh, Professor Penny Fielding, Dr. David Sorfa and Dr. Simon Cook. Uh, it leaves me to thank you, the listener. Uh, thanks for t- tuning in and join us again next time for another Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh.